Ultimately, body weight is a very simple thing. It's a product of um, the amount of energy you ingest relative to the energy you expend. So if you have a very high energy output, you need a phenomenal energy input. But my students often start off describing a breakfast which just sounds outrageous, you know, half a dozen eggs scrambled, a big pile of pancakes. And so what would you predict about this person? They say, oh, he must be huge overweight. Actually, he won eight gold medals swimming at the last Olympics. The trouble is the changes in um, the way society operates means that the vast majority of us don't have a high output and many of us have maintained the habits of a high input. Humans have been amazing. We've managed to sort of search out all the plant life of the world and find out which plants contain the substances which make us feel great. Uh, and, but there's a biology which underlies the actions of those chemicals. This is politically incorrect, but it's the truth. If you are poor, black and female and live in Mississippi, there's a 70% chance you'll be obese. If you're white, rich and female and live in Los Angeles, you're more likely to have an eating disorder than be obese. So there's this huge disparity based on lifestyle, economic situation and everything else, which makes obesity an extremely difficult problem. You're listening to Impacted. From the University of Sussex podcast series about research for real change. Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact that their work is having in the world. My name's Will Hood. And I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And the voice you've just been listening to is that of Martin Yeomans, Professor of Experimental Psychology and Director of Research and Knowledge Exchange for the School of Psychology. Martin has been with the university since 1989, where he set up the Sussex Ingestive Behaviour Group, a research group with over £3 million worth in grant income to date, which explores aspects of human eating and drinking. So, Martin, you teach on a wide range of topics in experimental and biological psychology, uh, but with a primary focus on research into human appetite, food choice and preference. Yes, that's right. Looking at your online profile, amongst the classes that you teach, uh, there's something called psychobiology. Perhaps you could, uh, we could start by digging around in that word. What is psychobiology? Um that's, that's a really nice place to start, actually, because biological psychology um, or psychobiology, depending on how which way around you put it, is, is that one of those interface areas between what look like different disciplines, um, but which has been a main core area of psychology since it was founded. So biological psychology looks at psychological phenomena, but looks at their biological underpinnings. In my case, my whole life's been spent working on why people like different foods, why we eat different foods, and what makes us hungry, what makes us full. And there's a biological underpinning to a huge amount of that. So, for example, if you've not eaten for four or five hours, um, there'll be changes in your blood glucose signaling, there'll be changes in, in your gut, all of which your brain becomes aware of, and which kind of starts giving you those sort of feelings halfway through giving, uh, talking to someone thinking, oh, my stomach's feeling a bit rumbly, I must be feeling hungry. So the cognition element, which what many people think of as psychology, is underpinned by the biological 
and biopsychology or psychobiology. It's all about understanding those relationships. You, you started in biology, didn't you? And then you moved across to psychology. Yes, for a PhD. I have to confess that was quite a shock to the system. I, 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 the history of how I got into biology is complicated, but uh, my first degree was in applied biology. As a, an applied biologist, I had the luck of having several industrial placements as part of my degree, uh, one of which was an animal behavior placement and got me very interested in, in the nature of animal behavior. So I was then looking for a PhD in animal behavior and happened to be one um, up at Edinburgh. And bizarrely, they, they, they put me in the psychology department, which I thought was very odd. And then I discovered this is where I should have been all my life. And um, I didn't want to leave. Interesting. So suddenly that opened up a whole new field of interest for you. Yeah, absolutely. It allowed me to start asking the questions about human and animal behavior, but taking a biological perspective on them uh, in, in, a, in a psychology school. And that's, that's been the pleasure of my life, really. So this link between psychology and food, when did food start becoming important to, to your work? I can date that right back to my undergrad. Um, I did a final year research project, which most students do, but mine was, um, and please don't laugh too loud, uh, was on the feeding behaviour of a caterpillar. So then when the PhD at Edinburgh came around, that was now looking at drinking behaviour, uh, but in this case in a different animal species in birds. At the end of my PhD, I then was offered a, a, t a temporary teaching post at Edinburgh and was able to work with this clinical psychopharmacologist to start asking exactly the same questions in humans about eating. So, so I progressed from animal behavior into human behavior because I was basically interested in the behavior of ingestion. The intersection of these two disciplines, biology and psychology, is that something specific to the area of food? I, I guess if you look at any of the motivated behaviours, um, the two things overlap. So, for example, whereas I work on, on feeding and drinking, many of my colleagues work on addiction. So, so actually, a very, very large amount of um, core, current, in, exciting areas are, are, are at this interface. And if you think of the challenges which this world currently has, a worldwide obesity crisis, an aging population with increased problems with memory loss, and then a further area into mental health and the huge increase in uh, anxiety and depression at all stages of, of life, but particularly in younger people. Again, there's a biological underpinning to those which uh, underlies most of the effective treatments. So these are very exciting times because this is one of the most important areas of current research. Martin's been running the Sussex Ingestive Behaviour Group now for over 20 years. It's a group that conducts a wide range of research into what he calls behavioural nutrition, and they're committed to better understanding a diversity of eating and drinking behaviours. Would you mind just explaining what the group is and what it does? Uh, the group is really a name for my lab, I suppose. Um, so I've had the pleasure of working with large numbers of PhD students and postdocs over the last 20, 30 years in my lab. And our research has covered a very wide range of uh, interactions between humans and food. Um, I guess the most important focus recently has been trying to break down some of the intellectual barriers between disciplines in the way that we approach appetite. Understanding the ways in which we interact with our appetites is a theme that runs through much of Martin's work, with a particular focus on gaining a greater understanding of the biological and psychological mechanisms behind satiety. 
Satiety is defined as the extent to which you feel full、um, after consuming a food. Now, the reason you may wish to better understand the sensation of fullness or satiety is because, if you are a food producer, understanding what your consumers' biological and psychological responses are to your product is crucial to the design of both its content and presentation. And so, our work has tried to bring these disparate areas together to work out if you were trying to generate a new food product, taking into account the. Um, the sensory, psychological, and biological aspects of consuming that product, which was going to effectively be something that people enjoyed to eat, but which way then allowed them to regulate their intake. What would you need to do to that product to make it achieve that? And there's always been this kind of naive approach that psychology is involved in what happens in choosing and enjoying the product. But once you swallowed it, it's nutrients, and nutrients always do the same thing. And we now know that's not true. And if you are consuming a product and there are no clues or cues to you at a psychological or sensory level that this is going to be something which is going to be filling, then even if nutrients are present, those nutrients don't generate the same level of satiety than if you have those high expectations that this is going to be a filling product. Where the psychobiological approach to satiety starts to get interesting. Is in the predictable ways in which human beings compensate for the degree in which they perceive their food to be nutritious. And this is where there's a really interesting element to the findings here. So, if you think a product is going to be really filling and it tastes really filling in your mouth, but it's actually quite low energy, perhaps it's a formulated diet product, then the mismatch between what your brain is expecting and what your gut experiences leads to a rebound hunger, and you overeat afterwards. But If it says this is going to be really filling, it tastes really filling, and it's full of nutrients, and you get those signals, then you reduce your intake. Now let's give you a, a really nice example. If you your expectations, if you consume a bowl of soup, is probably that soup is filling,、uh, and the evidence is that if we present you with energy in, as a soup, you eat less afterwards in a very consistent way. If I present you exactly the same energy as a, a liquid, which is a, a thin, watery beverage, which you drink out of a glass, you think this isn't going to be filling, and sure enough, you eat more afterwards. Same nutrients, but completely different behavioural and physiological responses. So, what we set about doing was developing design rules for industry, which thought about the messaging that went on a product before you consumed it, the sensory experience of the product at the point at which you consume it. And the actual nutrient content of that project, so that the three things aligned in a way that maximised satiety. Essentially, your body is trying to match between your experience at the point of ingestion and what you experience afterwards. So your belief about what the food's going to be like in your stomach affects the way your stomach processes things. How how responsive is industry to this information when you present it? What kind of impact does it have、um, on them and the way they work? I've been very very lucky that I've worked with a large number of the major、um, food manufacturers in the UK and, and, and internationally who are very very excited by these ideas. So they are very minded to do this. Ultimately, the people working for these companies are just normal people who want to produce good products which are good for their consumers. And the idea that they've inadvertently、um, produced products which people overconsume is a real worry to them. So they they have a an honest and、uh, open approach to trying to produce healthier, more appropriate 
products for their consumers and they're constantly trying to think of ways how do we help consumers eat this in a way where they can enjoy it get the, the benefits but not end up with a risk of over over consumption so there's almost an ethical uh, approach from many of the companies and uh, i'm not a, a front face for companies by the way but just my interactions with many of these companies persuades me that's true and of course it's also a legislative requirement you know, they're tasked with reducing fat and sugar content in products if you're producing a product which is 80% sugar and you're told you've got to take 20% of the sugar out that's quite a difficult challenge uh, you can't have the same product at the end of the day but what could you do which altered then people's beliefs about that product and the marketing and the sensory which would make that more satiating one of the ways that Martin and his team go about the technical job of recording food and drink behaviour is with something they call the Sussex Ingestive Pattern Monitoring Software, a research tool that allows them to conduct a wide range of cutting-edge studies into how we eat. Could we just talk about this Sussex Ingestion Pattern Monitor software? Oh, absolutely. Um, because that seems to be something that your group has developed um, so when I first started doing human ingestive work, um, I was frustrated that whereas in the animal behavior work I mentioned very early on, I had really detailed behavioral data on exactly when, how much, the style of eating of everything about my animals. When you come to humans, you tend to have to rely on diary data or or some rather clunky sort of fixed intake measures. And so I wanted to generate a way of producing a more data-rich way of analysing human ingestive behaviour. And so, so the system we've developed um, for measuring human eating involves um, a hidden balance built into a desktop. Um, so people are served bowls of food or plates of food on this balance system without being overtly aware that we're measuring the weight of food while they're eating. And that means I can get a time record for each mouthful they take. I have to sort of trust them that once they've taken a fork out of the bowl that they actually put it in their mouth, which most people do, and we've, we've done some verification of that using webcams. Once I'd first started talking about this and publishing on it, uh, a couple of other universities said, oh, this is really interesting, can we have this as well? And while I was happy just to give it to them, I talked to the university and said, oh, well, we ought to at least sell them the software. So we then set up back in about 2000, uh, a simple way of selling the software. And then after a few years doing this just to academics, we managed to get funding to improve the software and improve the marketing to make this more widely commercially available. But we've now expanded this to becoming um, software which is used widely around the world. So I think we sold units to about 30 or 40 different customers generating about, I think it's about £80,000 of income to the university so far from that. And interestingly, it's although the majority of uptakes have been from the academic commu research community, but also a couple of major companies who do research on eating uh, have brought it up, and several hospitals who are using it. That you can use the software in a variety of ways. And so, for example, you might be eating, and every 50 grams, a little beep goes off, and on the computer, you ask to rate how much you're enjoying the food, how full do you feel. So when we're thinking about those questions about satiety, if you're altering the energy density of the food, so you're working on a manipulated food, perhaps where you've added a novel in ingredient, you can look to see if that novel ingredient is affecting their experience of satiety within the eating episode. So you can start measuring out quite defined things. 
I mean, there's some interesting early findings from this. You know, if you make the food taste nicer, you actually feel more hungry about a third the way in the meal than you did before you started. And I don't know if you, that sounds counterintuitive, but most of us have had that experience where you don't feel at all hungry and you take a few mouthfuls of something and suddenly you're starving. Uh, and psychologically, that seems weird because we've always thought of hunger as a desire for eating when you haven't had nutrients. So as soon as you start eating, hunger should go down, and it didn't. And so we can start playing then with foods to see how you can manipulate that increase in hunger or, or, or control that increase in hunger or increase the rate at which you feel full within a meal. Coming back to sort of the area of impact and the, mm-hmm. the, the wider impact that your work has had, do you think that creating this software has raised the profile of the group and has raised the profile of your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think the the website we have through which we sell this software is one which gets a reasonable amount of traffic. More importantly, um, when people come to use this software, they have to then read my research to work out how best to use it. So it's had a big impact on the extent to which my work's been read and cited. And it also has led to research collaborations because now people are saying, I've got this interesting problem. I, your software might do it, but I'm not quite sure how to run it. And so I start collaborating with groups who I didn't know about before. There's also impacts into industry looking at, for example, drug treatments for obesity. So if you've got a, poten- a potential appetite suppressant drug that you want to market as an anti-obesity drug, using our kit, you can measure well, if people take this drug, are they eating normally but eating less? Or is this a drug that's just making them feel somewhat unwell, which is then preventing them from overeating? Or is it something which is reducing the pleasure of eating, which might be an effective way of treating obesity, providing you can get people to stay on the drugs, but chances are people won't take the drugs because removal of pleasure is not a good thing for patients. Martin has supervised as many as 20 DPhil students that have gone on to hold research careers in academia and industry. And these ongoing relationships between the world of industry and education have been influential on the Sussex Ingestive Group in a number of ways. I've been extremely lucky. I mean, one of the things I enjoy most is PhD supervision. And in fact, my interaction with industry has helped me there because I've had quite a lot of industry-funded PhD studentships at Sussex both fully funded and, and as case students. Can you talk a little bit more about how that process would work then, the, 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 the studentship process? Um, first, you've got to come up with, uh, identify a research question which is relevant to both the company and yourself. Um, one of my most successful examples recently was with a company called Ajinomoto. Ajinomoto are a major Japanese manufacturer of peptides, one of the peptides they make is monosodium glutamate and MSG has a bad press in many ways but actually is a very common constituent of a huge amount of what you and I eat. People forget that things like mushrooms and tomatoes and cheese are just full of MSG. The company came to me because they had heard me talk about this relationship between sensory and um, satiety and they were interested in the extent to which, well, could it be that MSG uh, and our ability to detect MSG in our tongues, the umami taste, has a role in, in satiety? There was good a priori reason to believe that was a, a sensible research question. And so I had a PhD student fully funded by them for three years who did some really excellent research 
Um, she had to come up with her own recipes for generating MSG depleted test foods and then selectively adding MSG and not using the uh, eating pattern monitor we talked about earlier to measure behavior. And um, sure enough, we man- we, we've published some evidence which, which suggests that actually the presence of MSG in foods providing the food has got a reasonable amount of protein and is nutrient rich causes much more enhanced satiety, which is perhaps why you feel quite full after going to certain sorts of restaurants and eating MSG-rich food. By making industry aware of what his team are working on, Martin has been approached for help in answering specific questions about ingestive behaviours, and from these relationships, new research questions have been generated. It has also been possible in some cases for industry to fund studentships through such mechanisms as the Knowledge Transfer Partnership as in this example with Leatherhead Food Research. Uh, Thinking of another example where our funded work through um, BBSRC, the the Biological Research Council, led to a relationship with industry was the BBSRC Drink Diet and Health Research Institute project. Uh, One of the requirements of that was really onerous. Every six months, you had to go along to a closed meeting and give a progress report stand up and give a talk on what you'd done on the project with all the industry partners present, which was really challenging. But one of the benefits of that was you were then talking to an audience of industry people who perhaps hadn't heard of you before. As academics, we're very prone to just choosing our cosy academic conferences and going to those alone. And in my case, one of those partners at the time was Leatherhead Food Research. And they have had at the time a very, very good nutrition department run by some people who had both experience in academia and in industry. And they, having heard me talk, got me to go and give a talk at Leatherhead. They then said, well, actually, what we'd really like is, is to get you to help us solve a problem we have. One of the things we're interested in is... How do different food and drink ingredients change our mood and cognitive performance? Would that be something you could help us with? And more importantly, we know there is a huge interest in in ingredients like omega fats and other things which are meant to improve cognitive performance. And would you be able to help us put together a sort of battery of cognitive tests. I said, in principle, we could try to do that. And so we wrote a KTP proposal, a knowledge transfer partnership proposal with Leatherhead, which got fully funded. And then we spent two years working on a series of app-based tests, which could be applied through little handheld devices. It was a, a very demanding two years' work, um, I partnered with people in informatics at Sussex to do some of the, the key technology. Um, we based our research very closely around work that I'd already done, but also knowledge I had of the field more generally. And the outcome of the KTP overall was very successful. At the same time, the, the people at Leatherhead were listening to my drink project outcome and saying, this is all very good, but we, we haven't really been able to test this out with proper consumers. You know, you're doing it all with, with experimental Sussex. Um, so wouldn't it be really good to try this out with a real consumer population? And, and you know, you're claiming real benefits of some of the formulations you've made in-house at Sussex on satiety. What would be really useful to industry would be to see whether those benefits are still true if someone drinks this product dozens of times. And so they part-funded a PhD at Sussex to exactly do that. 
Martin Yeoman's research calls into question the role industry plays in affecting consumer behaviour, obesity and overconsumption. You need ultimately, in my view, to be helping people understand that their lifestyle is the problem. That isn't a vote winner. If you say to someone, yes, you're overweight because actually you're drinking too much uh, energy-dense drinks, you're not exercising enough, you've got a very bad diet, people aren't going to run out and say, oh, I'm really going to vote for this person. But if you say instead, yes, I, I can see your problem and we're addressing that by taxing this nasty food industry, which is what's causing the problem. Ultimately, the food industry are, are, are offering consumers a phenomenal range of products which they can choose from. Um, and the food industry has some control about the size of the portions which they, they, they're selling and uh, absolutely uh, have to adhere to quite um, strict rules on nutritional content and the like. But they don't really control consumer behaviour. Uh, all they're doing is offering consumers choice and not surprisingly in a competitive world they have spent their time producing products which they think consumers will enjoy eating. But in, in doing so, they've created a, a world where there is almost too much choice and too many products which are easy to consume, which can in, lead to a risk of overconsumption. Obviously, the bottom line of selling a product is, is critical to their survival as a company. If they can be confident that in selling that product, they're also enhancing the health of that consumer, perhaps by giving them a pleasurable experience which doesn't cause them to overconsume, um, that that's a real win. I, I think there are good guys and bad guys out there. There are certainly companies who are very, very eager to do proper evidence-based research to improve their products in whatever way they can. So if you had to point to a key impact that your research has had outside of academia, what would that be? I know that there are several products on the UK market now which were reformulated based on our design rules. Um, I can't say what those products are, but I, I can. I know that the research we presented to those companies altered the way they went about then developing new products or reformulating existing products. That's a very hard one to prove that it has actually improved individual consumer health, but on average, it, if they've been regularly consuming those products in the old format and now they're consuming them in the new format, then certainly then they will be consuming less of the nutrients we would consider potentially harmful for their health than they were before. I mean, that certainly sounds like impact to me. Oh, it, it is. Yeah. I mean, what my big problem for um, documenting that impact is that is actually finding the evidence trail showing that that work has actually had that impact is proving much more difficult than I realise. Partly because of I'm not producing a new widget, I'm not producing a new app which you can easily measure. I'm putting out ideas about how you might change the, your approach to development of products into one which is more likely to produce products which are acceptable for consumers but also better for their health. And actually evidencing that is more tricky. Uh, personally, if I've had that impact at all, I'm absolutely delighted. And I know two ongoing projects with major, major companies where the, if that work comes off as we hope it will, it will have the biggest impact I've ever had. 
Do you have any sort of suggestions, general comments that you would make to other researchers around how working with industry could lead to impact? Um, ultimately, industry are often very poorly informed about research. They, they, they try hard to keep up with recent ideas in, in research areas relevant to their business, but the, the speed and volume of, of publication now makes it extremely difficult for industry to filter through this huge amount of information to find out what's truly ben beneficial. Um, they are much more likely to remember it if they hear you talking about it. So finding opportunities to uh, position your work in some forum where industry might listen uh, has the biggest impact of all for certain. It's putting yourself out in somewhere where your work is visible to industry and not being frightened to do that is key to making those relationships start. And my experience is, as with all in research relationships, if you don't get on with them, you ain't going to get anywhere. And I've been lucky to have met very, very many nice people who really, really uh, are a pleasure to work with. And that's what, what's kept me going. Well, thank you very much. Oh, really pleasure. And what are you having for lunch, Martin? I haven't decided yet. I was just looking at the time. Now is usually when I hop on my bike and go over to the gym. So um, I'll decide lunch when I get back, if, I, if time allows me. Well, that's so impressive. I practice the gym at lunch. Um, I find I function much better if I make sure I'm mixing good exercise with work. But then I overindulge later. So, uh, <laughs> this is lifestyle messaging yes, yes, in real yeah. time. I know. It's yeah. Uh, I, um, yeah. It's just a habit I've got into. And uh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, really pleasure. Appreciate.